going to read Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angels of the church in Sardis wrote, The word of him who has the seven spirit of God and the seven stars. I know your work. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is, about to, uh, and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you receive and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, I pray that we would use our ears that you've given us to hear from you today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you both. So it's been now five weeks of sitting with these letters. <laughs> and I don't know about you. Uh, if you share in some of my emotions of both encouragement and uh, mild depression and looking at what the Spirit has to say to these seven churches. There's encouragement in that I think for me, my tendencies as a third child out of four have, have kicked in a little bit. Any, any third children out there? Yeah? So as a third child, what you learn is uh, from the older siblings' mistakes. They say the most valuable lesson uh, is learning from other people's mistakes and, and foibles. And my older siblings, who I love and uh, don't want to embarrass you too much today, Rachel, but uh, you go, huh, that's not working out so well. I'm going to stay away from that. Um, and I just went to being a religious Pharisee in my childhood. But those tendencies can kick in in that you look at these other churches and see some of their failures, some of the, the challenge that Jesus presses against them, and, and they can be helpful and corrective for us to not repeat uh, some of the same mistakes. But depressing in that both then and now, as we see the church of God, you see that it is full of broken people. And the church of God and the people of God often are, are wayward. And the hymn just keeps going in my head, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And I think it ought to place in us an element of humility that kind of roots us and grounds us in a dependency that, that we wouldn't be puffed up in pride to go, I'd never be like that. I'd never do that. Because uh, as soon as we say that, we become that. And so I hope that these letters are both um, encouraging but also sobering. 
if you want more encouragement, come next week because it's the Church of Philadelphia and it's just only always good things there. So go Eagles. Yeah, there you go. That was perfect timing, Linda. Great. Maybe it's a sign. To the church in Kansas City, right. I see your ankle, Patrick Mahomes. Anyways, Sardis. This is a church that had a reputation of life, but they, according to Jesus, are dead. And so I hope today we see that Jesus is still working and speaking and inviting and promising, and we would see this church in the first century, and that might form us and protect us to live well in the world today. In chapter 3, verse 1, we're introduced to this church from Jesus, who again, if you haven't been with us these weeks, there's a little bit of a formula that follows every single week. We get a glimpse into who Jesus is and his character, and this image continues to be filled out through these letters as he identifies himself, his nature, what he's like, how he rolls. Every church gets an evaluation of what Jesus sees and hears and, and, and how he is relating to them. And then in every single church, we get a promise. So first here with Jesus, we see that he is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, showing a couple themes that have been sprinkled throughout these letters. Back in Revelation chapter 1, in this glorious introduction of the glorified and um, exalted Son of God, you get all of this imagery that is borrowed throughout the different Old Testament books of the Bible. And, and one that is repeated here is this kind of trim, Trinitarian image of the Father, Son, and Spirit working together in harmony. The Holy Spirit that filled and empowered Jesus himself is shown here with the number seven meaning complete. The Anytime you see the number seven in the Bible, it, it's marking completeness. So Jesus having the seven spirits means that, that he is full of the spirit of God. And he possesses the seven stars, which again from chapter one is meant to signify the angels. And this Jesus is speaking into and helping the church that he is full of the spirit of God and, and has authority over the angels of God that are meant to help the church of God where they find themselves. That Jesus is alive then and now and aglow. Giving us this image again of the Trinitarian God who has been, even as I say these words, I, I just fully realize that to try and explain the Trinity is impossible. Uh, but there's this old quote, I think it's from Augustine, that uh, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul, but if you try to fully explain the Trinity, you lose your mind, right? And so God, we see the pre-existing, all-consuming, never-ending one. He's active and present in his church then and today. And it's helpful for me to remember this because often I can just hold God as an idea, as a concept, as kind of a little bit of a genie in the bottle or spirit in the sky. Life has a tendency to cloud out who God is in, in the reality of his presence in our everyday lives. There's a little old book by J.B. Phillips, Your God is Too Small. We can companion that with a book, I believe it's Mark Buchanan, Your God is Too Safe. And what we're brought to here is that God is three in one, and in the Father, Son, and Spirit, he's inviting us to experience, to taste, to see, 
to live with him. And we see this in a few ways. First, God the Father is revealed in the world. Psalm 19, 1 through 2 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Psalm 19 is such a beautiful psalm that talks about the world of God and the word of God and how God is revealed through both. We see that in this world, God is revealing himself. You see that theme picked up in Romans chapter 1 by Paul. Another one uh, that speaks about the fullness of God seen in creation in the world is Psalm 24, where it says, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, that God the Father is revealing himself in the world, in the created order. Uh, some call it nature, others creation. Just this is, to put a hymn to it, my Father's world. God the Father is revealed. God is also revealed in his word that's given. We have found ourselves coming back again and again to Hebrews chapter 4, where there's this encouragement beginning in verse 11 for God's people to enter into rest and allow God's word to do a work in their lives. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest that no one may fall to the same sort of disobedience, speaking about the children of Israel who resisted. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes to whom we must give an account. This theme has been seen throughout these letters and again and again and again that the word of God uh, it is very true and in that truth it cuts. And the cut isn't in order to hurt, but it's in order to heal. Uh, again, at this youth camp last week, it's... I've said this so many times, I'm not cut out anymore to be a youth pastor. I don't know that I ever was cut out, but they needed somebody for the job back in the day. And this band is singing this song, and it's Holy Spirit, come rest on us. We want you here, we want you here. Sing that about a hundred times again and again and again and again. And again. You see? And what I told those kids is that we often, in, as we say this, there's this desire we have for God's comfort from his spirit. And yes, God's spirit does comfort, but he also convicts. And, and you can know that the Holy Spirit is resting on you, not just because you have some warm, fuzzy feelings inside, though those are wonderful and great. But often with that comfort comes conviction of, hey, there's some sickness in your life that needs to be removed. It made my wife think about her work as a nurse. She works at Prescott Outpatient Surgery Center, and what she said is what that reminded her of is often when they get kids in to get their tonsils and adenoids removed, they go, oh, hey, little one, I know you're nervous about needles and going under the knife and all that, so here's a stuffed animal. Oh, yay. And we're going to knock you out and slice you up. But first, comfort before the cutting. And this is what God does in the life of his people. Yes, there's this amazing, deep, rich comfort that we have from him in the gospel, in this truth of rest and adoption and promise and all of that. But 
In his word, it also is meant to convict and slice out all of the things that would rob us of a right, right relationship with him, one another, and the world. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all scripture has been given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Why? That the man and woman, that uh, word in the Greek is all gendered of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. God gives us his word to work in our lives. So he's given us this world where he is revealed. He's given us his word where he's revealed. But then he gives us his spirit to, to send out us as witnesses in the world, that God's witness comes through his people in the world. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been... Oh, that's Matthew 28. I'm, I'm getting my verses mixed up. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God is revealed in the world through witnesses. The Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God and empowers them for life, for, for preaching, for hospitality, for witness of God in the midst of the world. This is what Jesus says in the Beatitudes when he gives this beautiful dual image of God's people being salt and light. He says to his disciples then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything to, but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And this is what we see again and again in the book of Revelation, that the first century's church journey with Jesus was being met with increasing difficulty in the culture around them. The pressure was mounting with persecution and idolatry, idolatry being the chief threats. So you have Jesus who came, who equipped these disciples. They go out, they preach the gospel, they plant churches. Disciples are being made and spread. And then there's hostility that comes from the outside. And it's a dual threat. One was of persecution that God's people were being put to the test and, and eventually murdered for their faith of proclaiming a gospel other than the gospel according to Rome and Caesar being Lord. And instead, they were saying, no, Jesus is Lord. But then there's these threats of idolatry, that, that their affection and their love and their worship would be captivated by other things. And so the book of Revelation comes and these letters come to orient God's people to be in relationship with him rightly in the world through his word given and in the witness of their lives in the world. And we see in Sardis something had taken place. They had the appearance, the reputation of life, and yet Jesus sees death. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, if you've read the gospel accounts, what Jesus is never interested in is appearance. What we're often primarily interested in 
is appearance. All about image and look of things. This is life outside, put together, project an image, filter the face, <laughs> remove the wrinkles, and this is true in the church. This is who the letter's coming to. You have the appearance of being alive, but inside, you're dead. It, it doesn't seem as though Jesus is on the, the boat of fake it till you make it. Especially when life with him and witness in the world is concerned. Yet again, the, the blazing gaze of Jesus sees through it all. Which is refreshing and terrifying. You have any of those relationships where somebody that just, they see right through you, but also love you? A friend, a spouse, a coworker that just knows you? And you could, you know, do the large coffee and four shots of espresso, and you're like, I'm good. And you're like, mm. are you? Jesus sees through it all. And we need to remind ourselves of how Jesus deals with hypocrisy, with heresy, and with internal deadness. He, he's not okay and interested in his people going through the motions. In, in just having an appearance. In fact, if you look at the Gospels, some of the strongest language Jesus, is, Jesus uses is for those who do exactly this, who put out an outward appearance of godliness and righteousness and good deeds in the world of following all the rules, but their hearts were wicked and more interested in power and security and position and pride. Jesus said of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're whitewashed tombs, they're blind guides, they're children of hell, they're serpents. It's never a good day when Jesus calls you a snake. You can look at that in Matthew chapter 23. And what we see in this account of Revelation 2 and 3, in the church of Ephesus, Thyatira, Pergamum, and here in Sardis, Jesus reserves strong words when God's people are not oriented towards him in worship in all of life. So how did this happen? How does this happen? There's a book, I think it's by Tom Rainer that I read back in the day, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, that comes to mind. How does a church die on the inside? Well, there's a lot of speculation of what happened in Sardis because not a whole lot's known. But what one of the main theories is that persecution in the world led to a capitulation with culture that the mounting pressure from the outside caused their hearts and their minds and their lives to cool on the inside. Rather than dealing with the consequence of faithfulness to Jesus in the world, they decided to just go through the motions. And this has been the temptation all throughout history. I came across 
a, a particular tweet thread that I found helpful that, that kind of speaks to this of, of the different postures the church often takes throughout history. This is from a guy named David Cassidy. He says, the temptations for the church are threefold. Either with the world and culture, we want to imitate, we want to dominate, or we want to isolate. First, imitate, that we uh, have the tendency to accommodate or just sync with the culture. We're just like you. Not that the Mormon church is the true church, but you saw this advertisement campaign years ago. I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm just like you. I'm a Mormon. Like, yeah, well. I think Joseph Smith would have something to say about that. That's another story for another time. But this is the temptation for the church, is to lose distinction in the midst of the world and become just like the world. We're just like you, we like to have a good time and we're not so weird. And just, the word is syncretism, become like the world and lose distinction. The other, which I think in some ways we see today of, see all of these flavors in different places, is to dominate. You see that there's pressure in the world and there's ungodliness and so we will war against the culture. There's a bit of a disturbing trend and rise in Christian nationalism today that wants to put kind of God and country together in an unholy matrimony in order to control the culture. Again, we've talked in times past about Christianity and politics and, and being in a healthy way active and participants in society in that way as we have that responsibility. But when those two are wed together for the sake of controlling the culture, the church has lost the plot. When the church sees the world as enemies to control rather than neighbors to love, we've lost the plot. Another is don't like imitation, don't like domination, so let's just do some isolation. This is kind of the undercurrent of Christian subculture. And so we will have our own tribe and our own thing and our own music and our own books and our own entertainment and everything will just be kind of in this tight-knit Christian subculture that is just completely removed from the world. We'll just develop a hermitage. And what David Cassidy proposes and I think is, is biblical is rather than imit imitate, dominate, and isolate, he says the way of Jesus is to incarnate. And he says this, incarnate, the body of Christ is sent on mission in the world, distinct in holiness, humble in service, with clarity in the truth and charity towards all. When I read that, I just went, that's it. And I think as you look throughout history, the church at its best has been this. We can, and I often do, and probably will by the end of this message, rail on the church for its failings throughout history. And there's a right way to critique the church. I don't always do it the right way. I can be harsh and cynical and, and all of that. I want to grow in that. But there's also, in the same breath, a need to celebrate the good that the church has perpetuated in the world. You know why slavery has been outlawed historically? Because of the church's witness in the midst of the world also capitulated, can talk about both. Universities, hospitals, all of it, look through history and go, 
Most of those things had seeds in the church that developed in the good of society. The church being a witness in the world for the good of all. And so rather than having an internal deadness that can come by wanting to be just like the world or wanting to control the world or wanting to completely remove ourselves from the world, what we see is that we're called to follow Jesus in the midst of for the good of our neighbor. That's the call. To avoid faking, to avoid despondency, to avoid despair, or an overly optimistic kind of cliched approach to it all. And so I was thinking through this this week, and uh, an image came to mind on a run that I had on, uh, what was that, Wednesday. And, and so I called the Union Church Graphics Department and said, we, we, can, we can get a graphic for you all. That's me, if you didn't know. So very proud of this. I, I want to present to you a framework for incarnation and formation. All right? Here it is. Boom. That's nice, huh? It's pretty good. It's improving. I didn't use, like, the, the highlighter marker thing. So here's what I see. Is that God the Father is revealed in the world. We talked about that. God the Son is revealed in the Word. And God's Spirit is empowering us to be witnesses. And what we have in this is God's people in the center of this uh, Trinitarian love rooted and grounded there. And I think that each one of us, if, if you've been with us any amount of time, you, you know that I love to invent personality profile tests as well. And, and I was thinking on this run that most of us have a natural bent towards one or the other. Like some of you are very much uh, connected in terms of you're like, I like being outside, I like creation, that's where I sense God. Others of you are maybe a little more cerebral and you're like, nah, I'm a Bible guy and I like being inside and I like my coffee and my quiet time and so you lean kind of that way. And others of you are like, you know what, that's all good and fine, but we need to be active in the world and so I want to be doing something, I want to be saying something, I want to be interacting with real people. And, and, and I think that we have a tendency to be pulled one way or another, and, and it's not 33%, 33%, 33%, but it's a natural tension of being held in the middle that God's people see themselves is placed in our Father's world, our world. There's a great confession of faith from the Christian Reformed Church that you can look up. It's called, Our World Belongs to God. And it, and it kind of is this catechism approach to seeing God in his world and being formed by it. We live in our Father's world. God rules and he reigns. And he's given us his son. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us, John chapter 1 says. And in God's word, we see his plan of redemption revealed. And then in this infinite mystery, he gives us his spirit that empowers us to be his witnesses, the way in which God reveals himself in his world is through his people sent on mission of love to their neighbors, to their coworkers, to their families. And it, it's God's people together, not isolated individuals, but God's people held together in the midst of it all being sent out. And we have to recognize that all throughout church history and even into today, there's the threats of our flesh, there's the, te the temptations of the devil, there's the forces at work to pull us from center. 
And what I see in, in the church today and often in my heart is that we're often going, okay, God, I'll, I'll follow you, but I want, like, I want results in this, either personally or corporately. And so we'll, we'll push after this and we'll, we'll conquer the hill, but we need, to, we need to grow. We need to improve. We need to arrive at some point that the pastor often comes up with. And it's, you know, we're going to do this campaign and we're going to drum up support and we're going to have this many baptisms and this many communities. And, and we kind of put this capitalistic approach on top of the church. And what that often leads to is burnout, church-wide and then again personally. Did, am I the only one that thinks like, man, I've been following Jesus all these years. I thought I'd be a little bit further along now. And you go, hmm, this is harder. Life, marriage, work, this is harder than I anticipated. And, and rather than just resting and going at the pace of Jesus and having a, a patience and slowness in it all, we go, huh, apathetic, or we get frustrated and try to drum up more in ourselves. And I know I'll wake up at 5.30 now and I'm going to read more and I'm going to do this and I'm going to... It's just kind of exhausting when we put the metrics of the world on top of the life of faith. I was reading a book recently by this guy, Al Noble, called You Are Not Your Own. Belonging to God in an inhuman world, he says this, you may never see the fruits of your labor in this life, but it doesn't matter. I find that hard to believe. God did not call you to be successful. He called you to be faithful. And so if and when there is so-called success, results, fruit, praise his name. And if and when there's not necessarily the success, the fruit, the harvest that we had desired, praise his name. I've talked about this before. I, I've learned a lot working for my in-laws at their house doing uh, lawn maintenance and some tree trimming and, and all of that, just observing these two apple trees that they have and never knowing year after year what the harvest is going to be, ever. There's so many different factors. And, and, and every spring, though, there's this hope as it blossoms. This is going to be the year. And it's been, I don't know, it's Goodness gracious, 2009. So this will be my 14th year of being out there observing these trees every single week. Is it, is it going to be the year? I think it's been maybe three, four years of like good, good years. The rest you're like, yeah, just shovel these all into the back acre and let the birds eat them. We don't know. But not knowing doesn't change the fact of following him, following him in all of life. Again, another quote from the same book by a French philosopher, Jacques Ellul. Did I say that right? Anybody know French? Did I say that right? Almost. Almost? You want me to try again and just, you, no. Okay, perfect. <laughs> he says, our task is not to spend time pondering this success, but to obey our orders. And this is the word of Jesus in Revelation 3.3. Where he says, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Jesus says, remember the gift that was given and heard. Keep it, hold to it, and repent. 
and how beautifully simple and comprehensive this word is. It's not simply an intellectual exercise, but an inner transformation. This is the continual process for God's people. Remember what you received. Do not forget this infinitely good, beautiful gift that Jesus has given you in the gospel. Keep it. Hold it. Treasure it. Do not move from it. Hold that gift you've been given. Uh, allow that gift to come, to transform, to work, to minister, to comfort, to convict, again and again and again. Nancy Lee DeMoss says this about that gift and the word of God. Keep in mind that it's not enough that we should just read the word. The object is that the words that are printed on the page would become indelibly written on our hearts. God never intended that we should merely get onto his word. His intent is that his word should get into us. And the alternative is meant to startle us. Jesus says, I will come like a thief. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at the hour I will come against you. This is a separate sermon for a separate time of the motif of thief that Jesus uses throughout scripture um, that is, I'm going to get myself into trouble. Um, just let's get coffee if you want to talk further about the thief motif, because what uh, was given to us by the Left Behind series, which is a work of fiction, is that uh, God's people are caught up, and then there's all this judgment, thief in the night, another 70s Christian horror scare you into faith story. But every time you see the motif of a thief, the removal is not towards glory, it's, it's towards judgment every single time. Um, you see it in scripture. So again, if you want to get coffee, talk about that in, in all. We, we can go down that rabbit hole. I'm not, I don't have the time for it right now. But Jesus says, if you don't take, remember, hold, there will be this removal and judgment. But, and this is what I have to remember, when Jesus is speaking, there's hope. The word to Sardis is similar to John 15's image of a vine and branches and the father pruning. And the good news in Sardis is that there's still a remnant. Jesus is speaking to his people, and there's still a people there, uh, that it's not always all bad. Jesus has the eyes to see this, I and we often don't. He says, yet you still, this is verse 4, have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And this is what I was encouraged by this week, is that when there's a remnant, there's always room for revival. When it seems like everything is lost in the world or even in the church, God has always held a people, and where there's a remnant, there's always room for revival. You can look at 1 Kings 19, 9 through 18. We aren't going to go through the whole thing right now, but you see it, it's like Elijah in, in that story where he's frustrated, and, and it's Ahab and Jezebel who we talked about uh, last week or two weeks ago, uh, and there's all this 
compromise in Israel at the time. And, and Elijah is like, God, I'm the only one here. And he's like, well, I know it feels that way. However, there's this remnant. There's these that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And, and from that, there can be renewal. We can often, I can, whine and complain and feel like, does nobody else care? Am I the only one? And I sense this is my inner voice, the Lord being like, that's cute. <laughs> there, there, I see how you feel. But he has a people all throughout the world. And though you, like me, likely have concerns of our time and our nation and even our city and going, Lord, <laughs> this doesn't look so good. You've seen revival in the last 50 years breaking out in Africa, breaking out in Asia, Latin America. And, and even, even this week, there's a neat story coming out of Asbury College that had a revival in the 70s that there's a, a, another kind of awakening happening in this little college in the Carolinas of students seeking after God's heart, repenting of sin and, and being sent out. Where there's a remnant, remnant, there's always a hope for revival. And the question is, are we ready? Are we preparing? Are we praying? Are we situating ourselves in such a way that is not leaving the gift of the gospel, but holding to that and, and ready to allow that to shape our lives? And as it shapes our lives, there's, there's a trickle effect into all of life. In that place, when we remember what we have received and heard, when we, when we keep it, when we're living lives of repentance, there's this great promise that comes that we see in verse 5 and 6. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's multiple promises taking place. For those that hold to Jesus, there's covering. He will clothe you in white garments. He will keep you. He will not blot your name out of the book of life. He will confess your name before the Father and before his angels. And in that, we have communion with him. And that future reality is true of the present. That God's people, in holding to Jesus, in faith and repentance, are covered. White as snow, white as snow, though my sins were as scarlet, Lord, I know, Lord, I know that I'm clean and forgiven. We're kept. He will not blot our names out of his book. He will confess our names before the Father and the angels. Don't you long to hear that well done? Well, until we hear it, we hold to the one who knows, who sees, who speaks, who invites, who empowers. And again, one day we'll be fully covered, fully kept, we will hear those words confessed. And what I want to place before you today as we close is how might that future day 
inform this day? How might that future day of promise where we come before God, where there's no more tears, there's no more pain, there's no more heartache, there's no more temptation for isolation, uh, for domination, for imitation, when we're fully and finally with Jesus in that place of rest, how does that inform this day? I pray for us as God's people, it would help us to hold fast to his word and his truth, though temptations rage around us, that would, it would enable us and empower us to enjoy the good gifts of God's world that he's revealed and given us as we eat and drink and go out and breathe in the oxygen and enjoy the sunlight and, and all these good gifts and, and that we wouldn't lose sight of the fact that he's empowered us in the lives that we live and the words that we speak to be his witnesses. That the good news of the gospel is traveling through us. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you for your world that you have placed us in. We thank you that the word you have given us is good news in Jesus, that it reveals your heart, and that you've empowered us with your spirit to be your witnesses in this world. We confess today that we often lose sight. And we thank you, Jesus, that you know that. You are no stranger to the temptations that we face, but you took on flesh, resisted sin, and have gifted us with your spirit to walk in this newness of life. And so would you, Jesus, help us to be rooted and grounded in your love? Where there is sin, where there is capitulation to the culture where there is a lack of boldness in our witness, would you lead us in a path of repentance where we have just been simply going through the motions or, or pretending where there's hypocrisy, God, would you reveal that and give us the, the courage to confess and come back to center? holding to the gift that you've given us and that we have received in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.